You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all again this morning. Great to have an opportunity to open God's Word together. And as we've just prayed together, as we've just sung together, to be before God's throne in prayer, to hear His Word speaking to us. And may it be true that we hear His words, uh, not the words of, of anyone else, but that we would be, have our hearts tuned to hear our teacher, the Holy Spirit, this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bible to Amos chapter 5. We'll be continuing in the book of Amos this morning, beginning at verse 18 and working through to the end of the chapter. I'd like to begin our time this morning just by reading these verses together. And we'll take some time unpacking them this morning. Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, starts like this. Woe to you who are longing for the day of the Lord. For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear confronts him, or he goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him, will the day of the Lord not be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I reject your festivals nor do I delight in your festive assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fattened oxen. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll out like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, house of Israel? You also carried along Sikath, your king, and Kayun, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of armies. Well, these words this morning, as we've heard so many times already in the book of Amos, are challenging words. These can hit us in so many different places, even in the reality of our own lives here in the 21st century. All of these years separated from the original hearers. As we've just heard and been reminded, we are a part of God's covenant people, so that many of these words resound even to us today. And it will be our task this morning to try to hear what the, the message of the Lord is for us in, this, in these words this morning. And one of the most important things that I think we need to hear, we need to understand this morning, and I would just say it right up front, is that there is a particular danger of having a faith that is divided, of having a view of the Christian life that is cut off, or truncated, and isn't the real thing. As we begin to try to unpack this, 
I was, I was thinking this week about how might we begin to understand this. And one of the things that I thought of was this experience that I remember having as a child with, a, with younger siblings. I had a younger brother who's quite a bit younger than me, and I can remember him being very, very small and wanting to play video games along with me. And I, we had the old, uh, you know, Nintendo with the little rectangular gray and uh, black controllers, and there were just two of them. But what I would do is what maybe some of you older siblings would do, or maybe some of you parents have done, is that he would want to play, and I didn't want him to play, and he was too small to play anyway. But I wouldn't tell him to leave. Instead, I would give him that second controller that wasn't doing anything. And I would put it in his hand, and then I would play the game, and then he would think that he was playing the game along with me. And for a while, that worked. Sure, he caught on eventually, but he was happy because he had the appearance of playing the game. The controller was in his hand. He was sitting in front of the screen. He saw things moving on the screen, and he thought he was playing the game. But it was just the form. It was only true on the outside. It wasn't true through and through. There was a disconnect. The controller wasn't even connected to the game. And I believe that our enemy is trying to keep us disconnected from all that we should be doing in the Christian life. And that's a part of what we see in this passage. Now, I was hesitant to even use that example in this passage. And here's why. Because that makes it sound like this is a game. And it's not a game. This is life and this is death. This is heaven and this is hell. This is everything at stake right here. As I was thinking about that and trying to think how this might be more real or what else we might be able to use to think about this reality, I was reminded this week that it wasn't all that long ago. It was within the lifetimes of some folks sitting in this room right now that doctors began telling their patients when they were terminally ill. It used to be believed that it was better to just lie to them and tell them they were going to get better. Meanwhile, they knew there was nothing else that could be done. There was no more treatment that could be tried. That person was going to die. They would lie and remove the opportunity to to seek another uh, method of treatment or remove the opportunity to to say the final goodbyes or make the the kinds of connections that one would want to make in their last days. They cut them off from life and allowed them to live inside of an illusion that only had the appearance of life while the months turned into weeks, turned into days, turned into hours, and death was upon them. We have an enemy who would be happy to have us only living with the appearance of life, with the appearance of a vibrant living faith, and not experience the reality of it. And that's what these verses this morning remind us of. And that's what we will spend our time thinking about this morning. As we do this, I think it will be helpful for us to take a little bit of a step back and get a little bit of a reminder about where we're coming from and what we believe about the Christian life in the Bible. 
in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked a question. Just, just listen to this, and it will probably be familiar to you. In Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 37, we read this. So let me start just a little bit earlier so we hear the question. Beginning in verse 34 of Matthew 22, we read, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. When Jesus answers this way, it surprises them. But Jesus isn't coming out of nowhere with this answer. He's not just making something up on the fly. Instead, Jesus is giving them what they should have been reading from the entirety of Scripture. It's a pattern that we see throughout the Bible that we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, where we saw this reminder that I am your God who has brought you out of Egypt. I have given you this salvation. I chose your fathers. This is who you are. And I am a God who is loving of the orphans and widows and those who are needy and oppressed. And I want you to be that to those around you. When we read the Ten Commandments, we see that the first four are about the relationship to God and the remaining six are about the relationship to one another. Love God, love one another. The first and the second commandments. And we see the same thing in the Christian life. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, when we read that we are saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, so that no one may boast, we read immediately afterward that it's for the purpose of good works which God prepared beforehand so that you might walk in them. We see that first is our relationship with God and then it flows out into our relationship with others and the world. The entire gospel story that we seek to make paramount here at this church makes sense around these truths because it reminds us that our fundamental problem as human beings is that our relationship to God is broken. And only when that relationship to God is restored can our relationship with everything else that he has created fall into place. And these two things, our love of God and our, our love of one another, our, our faith in God and our, our works are so closely tied together that we can have New Testament authors saying seemingly contradictory things. When Paul tells us that we are justified by faith apart from works, and James says that we are justified by our works. And at first we read those and we say, what is happening? These two authors can't agree with each other. But on the contrary, they are saying the exact same thing that Jesus says and the exact same thing that the rest of the testimony of Scripture gives us is that these two things, love of God and love of others, are essentially two sides of the same coin. 
You don't get one without the other. They aren't in contradiction. They're merely emphasizing the reality. But when I speak about a divided faith or a disconnected faith, the danger for us and the thing for us to see this morning in Amos, what we are seeing is that there is a very real danger that these two things, our love of God and our love of others, our action in the world will be divided and separated. And when that happens, our Christian life is essentially tricking us into believing that we have the controller, that we're in the game, and we are completely disconnected from it. We want to see how this works so that we can fight it as God's faithful people in this world. So what we see in these verses are three different ways that the enemy seeks to separate and break apart the Christian life. In the first three verses, from 18 to 20, we see that faith is divided. When, when you believe or when we believe that the Christian life is all about the future hope of heaven and not about anything else, we read here this, this woe, this cry of, of despair and of lament for those who are longing for the day of the Lord. Now think about that for a moment. Seeking the day of the Lord, longing for the day when Jesus returns and when judgment comes and everything is finally made right. That's a great thing. That's something that we should seek. But here, he says, when they're seeking for it, it's not a good thing. And there are these images that help to understand what it's going to look like for them if they continue in their life in this way. You can imagine being frightened. We don't usually run across lions very often. Uh, in our home, I, I think probably when I hear a scream that's like a terrifying, blood-curdling scream, it's usually a spider in the house. But imagine turning a corner and finding yourself face-to-face -face with an angry, hungry lion to run from it, heart beating, pounding as fast as you can to turn the corner and find that, well, there's now a hungry bear that's waiting for you. No go. It's not exciting. You keep running, running, trying to make it back home, finally arriving there thinking, if I can just make it to the house, everything will be okay. I'll close the door behind me. I'll lock it. Everything will be fine. Running in the house, hitting the lock, hitting the security system. Everything's okay. Hand against the wall, only to find that there's a snake ready to bite and kill. This is the image that we're given here by the Lord. That that hope, that longing for home, for safety, for security, that rightly belongs to the day of the Lord, he's saying, does not belong to these people. And we have to remember from last week the reason why he's saying these things. We can go back to verse 12 where we see, I know your offenses are many and your sins are great. You are hostile to the righteous and accept bribes and you turn away the poor from justice at the gate. You see, 
the faith that they had that was giving them confidence in the future was not affecting their life right now in the way that it should. And Amos is calling shenanigans. He's saying, no, this isn't it. This isn't what it's supposed to be. You've got it wrong. They have still a part of their faith. They have the the frame of their faith. They're looking for the future. They're looking for hope. They're looking for the age to come, but they aren't living it out now. And this can truly happen for Christians as well. When we fall victim to the lie that says that our faith is only about what happens when we die. That that's what this is about. It's some kind of fire insurance or future. I won't have to go to hell and I know that I'll be with the Lord. But right now I can just kind of do whatever and everything is fine. That isn't the Christian faith because it's disconnected these two things which God has joined together. We read instead, I would encourage you, we don't have time to do it this morning, but I would encourage you to take some time to read Acts chapter 2. Where there we see Peter having just learned from Jesus his Lord how to understand the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And he does it by going back to the prophets. He reads in the book of Joel about the day of the Lord about darkness and about all of these things that are coming. And he's saying, that is the day that is here. Now that Jesus has come, the day of the Lord has begun. And we now, even more than they were then, are living in the reality that Jesus is Lord. We know him by name. We know what he has done and we can proclaim it to those who are around us. We should not merely be looking to the future hope. We should also be seeing that that future hope, which is real, impacts our daily lives. Now, I don't want to be heard to say this morning that, well, does that mean that I I shouldn't be confident in my faith? Should I, should I be hesitant whether the Lord really embraces me or really accepts me if I'm not being good enough? That's not what I'm saying. Our salvation is not based on how good we are. It's not based on what we do. It's based on the grace of our God, our Lord Jesus. It's based on his choosing, on his reaching out to us, on his accomplishing his work in us. But when that happens, we see the reality work out into our relationships. We see the reality work out into our our work, into the things that we do every day. And we want to pray to the Lord that we would see that happening in our lives. That we would not be people who would come to the Lord on the final day only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. We want to rest in him and allow his work to transform us completely. Of course, we know from the New Testament that the longing for the day of the Lord is a good thing. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, there's a longing which we know 
that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And he ends 1 Corinthians with a cry, Maranatha, come, Lord. It is truly a longing for Jesus that he is seeking. The question that I'd like for us to consider this morning when it comes to this is the question, first of all, do you long for the coming of Jesus? Do you long for the day of the Lord? And secondly, if so, why do you long for it? Is it merely to to get rid of uh, the sad parts of life, the things that we don't like? Is it just so that the pain will end or so that the relationships will finally be healed? Those things are true, of course. But we long for the day of the Lord because we long for our Savior. We long to see him. We long to know him. We long to to find, to really be able to see ourselves in him. We want him to enjoy him forever. Well, Amos continues in verse 21, beginning to say, I I hate, I reject your festivals. And this is a second way that we can divide our faith if we aren't careful, that we can be disconnected from the reality of it and maintain only the form. Our faith is divided when we believe that the Christian life is about going to church or doing just Christian things. He has words for that. I reject, I hate your festivals. I don't delight in your assemblies. He rolls through in these verses each aspect of Israel's worship. Assemblies that should be places of joy gathering together are not a delight to God. Offerings that are supposed to be raising up as good smelling things to heaven aren't. He says, I will not even look at the peace offerings. And from what we've seen in the book, a part of that emphasis on the peace offerings is because there is no peace. You're offering, you're saying there's peace or that you want there to be peace, but there is no peace. It's a lie. And and the songs are Uh, merely noise that God will not even listen to. Well, it's it's hard to not notice that many of the elements of Israel's worship have been carried over, rightly so, through the New Testament to our worship. What we do as the assembly, as the church gathered together. And it is still a reality today today as we talked in previous weeks about feigning or faking worship, that we can keep the externals. Meanwhile, there's no living reality behind it. That the assembly would be not joyful, the offerings spoiled, no peace, the noise of songs. Are we saying that Church is bad, that we shouldn't go to church? Absolutely not. 
Should we just quit? No. God calls us to do these things. But when Christianity is just reduced to these kind of externals, you go to church, you say the right things, you hang around the right people, you maybe say prayers or or read your Bible. When it's just that, we lose the faith. I was reminded of the way an author, Nancy Piercy, puts it in beginning her book, Total Truth. She talks about someone who's working in a field that, that, as a Christian, they really probably shouldn't be involved in, but she's not able to make the connection. And talking about this individual, she says this. She says, the fatal weakness in her faith was that she had accepted Christian doctrines strictly as individual items of belief. She believed the deity of Christ, his virgin birth, his miracles, his resurrection from the dead. She could tick them off one by one, but she lacked a sense of how Christianity functions as a unified, overarching system of truth that applies to social issues and history, politics, anthropology, and all other subject areas. She had a Christianity that was a collection of truths, but not truth with a capital T. When we separate out our faith in this kind of way, we make the same sort of error. Amos is making this point for us too. God has no desire for people who are not living in a way that is consistent with their calling. It's not authentic. It's not real. It's not connected. We have the appearance of being God's people, but we aren't being God's people if we allow that to be the case. And the enemy would love for us to have a faith that is divided like that that can't allow us to connect what we hear on Sundays to the very issues that we're living in day to day at work, on social media, that people are talking about. The things we're engaging with are all a part of God's world. Every last inch of it, as the theologian said. Every single part should be lived in a way that is consistent with our calling consistent with who God seeks for us to be. It is true that our justification must result in seeking justice. We read in verse 24 that rather than all of the other things that God does not uh, delight in, he seeks that justice will roll out like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is a powerful verse that I've seen powerfully misused. And we want to try to understand what it is saying for us. What sorts of things does Amos mean when he talks about justice. I think we can, we can up front say he's not talking about um, it, just everything being equal for everyone. He's not talking about abolishing private property or anything like that. If we look at these verses, what we see is that people who did not have the means to bribe judges or did not have good social standing were being mistreated 
We've read already in this book about how people could not, the poor could not receive justice at the gate. That's, rather than a court, they would have a place at the gate, we've heard already, where judgments would be made and uh, things could be uh, uh, fo- followed through on in that way. But they, didn't, they wouldn't receive justice in those places. We see the treatment of those who are less fortunate. We've seen recently, last week, in verse 11, that heavy rents were being imposed on the poor. Did you think of uh, the amount of rent that is being offered someone as a spiritual issue? Or is that just economics? Not to be touched with our faith. This is saying all of it is tied together. Now, sure, those things get complicated sometimes, but it's not worth it to divorce them. These are the sorts of practical things that Amos means when he talks about justice. It's concerned especially with the poor, with widows, with orphans, with strangers or immigrants in the land, people who are from somewhere else who are included in God's people. These are the particular people who he is concerned with. And please remember that the way that Amos works the way that what he's doing in this book is recalling the people back to the promises and back to what God has asked them to do. We just read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses telling the people, this is what the Lord expects of you, acting justly, living like this in the land. So when Amos comes back, he's essentially acting like uh, an attorney coming back and saying, you've not held up to your end of the contract. And so the judgments of the curse from Deuteronomy that you agreed to are coming down upon you. He's reminding them of the things that God has already told them he looks after. That God is a God who doesn't accept bribes. That God is a God who looks out for the oppressed. And he expects his people to be like him in the world. Spend some time thinking now and this week about that metaphor. Justice rolling out like waters. Righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. You can imagine like a, a place where there isn't normally water in this, in this region. When the rainy season would come, all of a sudden these, these places could fill with water. And the water would come rushing down. And it could not be stopped. If we think about that image, ever-flowing, unstoppable, is that what we think of when we think of Christians and justice? What I often find is that it seems that we talk a little bit more about uh, restraint. Uh, Yeah, we believe in justice, but let's be careful. We don't want to go too far. We don't want to get too serious about those things. How do we respond to that? How do we think about that? Can we be too concerned with justice and the things of this world? I have a number of uh, church history books in my library. One of the things that's kind of cool to look at in a church history book is most of them have an index of locations. 
of places, of cities. And what you'll find is that there are uh, places like Rome, Jerusalem, Alexandria, that have a whole lot of pages. They've got a lot of time dedicated to them. Now, in, in a handful of the books that I have, there's one city that gets usually about a half a page, and it usually shows up in the index, at least of a lot of them. And that city is Columbus, Ohio. Why does Columbus, Ohio show up in a church history book? What's happened significantly in Columbus that would matter for us to think about? And the answer is that there was a, a pastor named Washington Gladden. He was a pastor at, at First Congregational Church. It's still there. It's on Broad Street. You can drive down and you, and you can go right down the street. They, they built the building just after he died, but the church had already been there well before he was there. That was a, a building that was kind of built to uh, sort of in his honor shortly after his death. And the thing that happened in that church is what's sometimes referred to as the social gospel movement. That there were theologians who were beginning to recognize passages like Amos 5. They were seeing that Christians have to have a heart for justice. They have to be seeking for the poor. They have to be doing these things. And what they did was they began to say that all we need to do is care for the poor, to work for justice. And what happened during his time there, and I've, I've not been there, I don't know anything nowadays, but in the books during his time there, church essentially became a kind of political rally where you could go there not to walk verse by verse through passages of scripture, but to instead hear about the problems of, of labor and the problems of a race and the problems of economics and all of these things, these war issues and things like that were the issues that were centered upon in the church. And they believed that simply by doing these things and working toward justice in the world, we were accomplishing the work of the gospel. And it's a lie. Without Jesus Christ and him crucified and our trusting in him for our own sin, there is no salvation. We can't feed enough poor people to bring about the kingdom of God. That isn't how this works. But how do we think about it? And how do we diagnose what happens here? And I really want you to think through this with me. I don't want to, I don't want to, to, to be misheard or, or to think about this wrongly. The question was, most people would say that he was too into justice and politics, that he went too far. And I want to suggest to you in a very significant way that he wasn't enough into it. And here's what I mean by that. Here's how I would think about this. I'm actually going to now, I'm really going to get myself in trouble. I'm going, to, I'm going to slightly disagree with something Rush said a couple of months ago. I'm going to do this as, a, as an exercise in thinking about this. When I was first introduced to this idea of thinking about how we can love other people or other things too much so that they become a replacement for God in my heart, they become idols in my heart, one of the questions that somebody asked me very early on was, so can I love my wife too much? And Rush asked this question a few months ago, and his answer was, yes, I can love my wife too much. And the reason that happens is that you can do that because you seek that relationship 
as the primary relationship in your life. And if I try to seek my relationship with my bride above everything else in the world, that is correct. It will fall apart. But here's the thing. I think that if I were to place God as the first relationship in my life, that I would actually grow in my capacity to love my wife to where I could love her more than I would have been able to if she was the first in my life. Think about it like this. That's a, that's a little confusing. Let's say I just planted a tree in my backyard. It's a, it's a little tree. Last week, let's say I did this last week. The kids come in and they say, Dad, can we put a tree house in the tree? No, you cannot put a tree house in the tree unless it's like this big. That's all the tree house we're going to put in that tree. But let's say that tree grows. Let's say that tree continues to grow and it grows more and more. Eventually, Kevin was talking about redwoods in ABF, probably not in Columbus, but let's say this tree continues to grow. Eventually, I can put an Airbnb with a ropes course in that tree right? Can you put a tree house in the tree once it grows? Yes, you can. Absolutely. The problem so often is that we are thinking about it as if this is a balance, as if I can only love so much, but I need to be careful not to too much. When instead understanding that if I'm continuing to grow in my identity as one of God's people, if I know who I am in Christ, I grow in my capacity to love my wife more than I ever could have before. And I think the same is true about justice. That I can be more able to engage in the matters of of politics and justice and things in the world as I grow in my maturity in Christ. That it isn't something where it's, it's this, well, you can only say X number of things about it or else you're in sin. And I fear that sometimes as Christians, we look at other Christians and we see them, well, they talk a lot, awful lot about racial reconciliation or about some other issues. And we assume that they're making the error of Washington Gladden. But it might be that they're continuing to grow in maturity, that they're understanding who they are in Christ even more, and that in their life, justice doesn't look like restraint. It looks like roaring waters. That's who we should seek to be, that kind of people. So do I think that Washington Gladden was too interested in justice? No, I don't think he was interested in it enough. Because if it was more, he would have taken it all of the center and placed the Lord as king over all at the center. And he would have been able to have even more impact in the world than he did otherwise. That's just... It's so hard for us to wrap our minds around that. That at the center of the Christian life is this denial of self. It's a denying of what we want. But when we come to Christ, we find that he's everything that we ever could have wanted. And we grow in him. We enjoy him. We understand so much more. And so I would just ask you to consider what are some of the ways that we might be a sort of people that are so fixed and firm in our identity as God's people that justice and righteousness flow out of our lives.
And we might not be able to change everything. We won't be able to change everything. And posting more on social media is not the answer, I'm going to say with some degree of confidence. But I think we can probably all find ways that we can set aside a little comfort, that we can learn to notice more the ways that people are mistreated and oppressed even when we aren't the ones that are immediately affected. And that we might be people who seek the opportunity to be those who love our neighbors, who love others the way that God loves. In our final verses, there's one more way that our faith can be divided, that we can miss the way that all of the, the work of God and the gospel connects love of God and love of others so that this is one great hope. The third here in verses 25 and 26 is that our faith is divided when we have different gods, small g, for different parts of life. We see here in these verses, did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, house of Israel? Now there's two ways to take this. You'll see commentators kind of going both ways. My immediate thought when I read that rhetorical question is that the answer is yes, we did. And you also carried along idols. Some believe that because God didn't give all of the instructions for the offerings until, for them to do until later, that he's actually saying that you didn't need sacrifices in the wilderness. And he's emphasizing that sacrifices aren't at the center. We could see that in the Psalms. We could see that in Hosea. That's, that's, so that's a true thing to say. But the emphasis here does seem to be that even while they have the appearance of offerings and sacrifices. They have the controller in their hand. They're sitting in front of the screen. They're also carrying along gods which they made for themselves. These two names are, are tricky to know exactly what he's talking about. More than likely what's happening here is he's using the name of the Mesopotamian name for Saturn, the star. And he's changing it a little bit by saying it in Hebrew, first of all, and then by, by changing a couple of syllables to make it sound more like the Hebrew word for abomination. So he's kind of making a little bit of a joke. You made these abominations that sound like the, the star god, Saturn. But the emphasis here is that these are gods which you made for themselves. While you were sacrificing and doing all these things, whether in the wilderness or in the land, you are also carrying along fake gods which you have made. We've been talking in ABF a lot about how conflict arises and where conflict comes from. And we've been reminded that what happens in our lives is that According to James, we all have desires or lusts in our heart. They're things that we seek after. And those things sort of climb slowly the throne of our heart so that we now seek after our outcome, our justification, whatever the thing is. And that becomes a sort of functional God 
That's what defines us. That's what we seek after. And so we've been reminded again and again that these other things that are created, that are good, become ultimate in our hearts. They capture us. They drive our actions. They build our justifications and our explanations of the world. And so in relationships, we can exclude God easily. It is too easy to create parts of our lives that are connected to God and other parts of our lives that are not. As I was thinking about this this week, I'm just trying to, to imagine what it would look like if we were people who consistently used our understanding of God and of who we are in him to make our decisions in life. That everything that we do wouldn't be cordoned off into different sections, but would be defined by who we are in Christ. And as, as I was thinking about this, I thought about it in a very personal way. I'm going to share something that very, very few of you uh, in the church know right now, which is that our family, for the better part of last year, was in some really very pretty serious conversations with the International Mission Board. That we were considering leaving this place and going across the world to share the gospel with people who hadn't heard it. And there are a whole lot of reasons to do that. And there are a lot of good reasons to do that. Now, obviously, now we've, we've bought a house here and we've made, taken some steps to, to really dig ourselves in here. But as I was thinking about that, I was trying to think about what, what really was that, that made that the thing. And here's what it is. It is so hard in our context here in Columbus, Ohio, here in Bexley, here in the surrounding area. It is so hard for us to know that our decisions are being informed by a larger decision to follow Jesus and to make him known. We make decisions based on comfort. We make decisions that are based on other values, security or other things. We treat them like gods. We allow them to define our lives and to dictate our actions. And so I think part of, our, part of the appeal, although this isn't the only driving motive, it'd be complicated, but in another country, we would have to deliberately give up parts of our life. We might have to go somewhere where we didn't have air conditioning or we didn't have a car. And those parts of our lives wouldn't be decisions that we made based on comfort. Those would be decisions that we deliberately made saying, how can I make the most impact for Jesus Christ in our world? That way we could know that Jesus is the driving passion of every single part of our lives, that we would uproot it and reconsider everything, that we would know that how we dressed, the sorts of things that we said or did or ate or drank would be because this is what is going to allow us to make the name of Jesus great in this place. Now, of course, we're still thinking about these things now. 
Because now that we're here, just like you, or maybe some of you are called to go to the other side of the world, in which case, do it. But for most of us, we're here. And it's easy for us to just embrace what the culture tells us. Embrace what people around us are saying. This is just what you do. It's comfortable. It's easy. And we live that way. Rather than deliberately making every choice about what we do, where we go, where we spend our time, where we spend our money, in a way that will impact the kingdom of God. That that would be the passion that drives our decisions. And I think that all of us could stand to reconsider each part of our life, asking ourselves the question, what defines, what helps us to, to make our decisions? What are the values that we're seeking? What are, the, what are the gods that we may be using to make our decisions in other parts of life? Now, part of me wants to, to really take some time to share an opinion, but I won't do that. We're moving toward, or we are in, or however you look at it, maybe another COVID wave of something, I don't know. Meanwhile, the kids are going back to school, and people are fighting more and more about masks and vaccines and everything else, and I'm tempted to tell you my thoughts, but I don't want to do that. Because we're not here to hear what, what Isaac thinks. What Amos says here is that each of us are prone to say that we worship God on Sunday and then go out and say, there are other parts of my life where I'm going to use other values and other gods, other idols to make my decisions. And what I will say is that what I'm hearing in a lot of conversations is that the things that are driving decisions are things like fear, things like security, things like freedom, rights, liberty. You know what Paul says about his liberties to eat and drink and wear? He says, whatever is going to allow me to share the gospel, that's what I will do. And so what I would like for us to do is really just spend some time thinking this week, and it'll be one of the community group questions, just asking ourselves, what are the values? What are the gods? What are the idols that we are tempted to use to make our decisions that will creep into other parts of our life if we don't deliberately say, no, Jesus is Lord over that part as well. We do not want to be people who have a divided faith. Instead, we want to seek the Lord. We want to seek his kingdom, his righteousness, his glory. What actions can we take that will show our love of our neighbors? What actions can we take that will help make the gospel evident in our lives? You know, I think it's possible that there are some here or some hearing this who are continuing to just take this faith thing as a game. Something you can show up, check off the boxes, and then move on with life doing whatever you'd like to do. 
Maybe that's you and you've never even trusted in Jesus Christ. Or you've maybe said a prayer somewhere along the line, but you never had any sense of Jesus Christ as Lord over your life and Lord over everything. And I want to encourage you this morning to take some time to consider that Jesus Christ died for you, for your sins. And he gives you his righteousness and his power, and it will show itself in every aspect of your life. There are others here who know Jesus, but perhaps you've let worries or other things creep in. And I would encourage you to take this time to repent of worshiping false gods. It's true of all of us at some level. That's what sin is. That's where it comes from, that we desire other things apart from God. But as Christians, we're not people who hide that, who run from it. We're people who acknowledge it. We see it as a reality. We know that it was sending us to the grave and to hell. But God, but he rescued us. And all of us, I think, can use the reminder this morning that there is an enemy. We have an enemy that would be thrilled to have us all have a divided, disconnected faith. He does not want to see people seeking to have God glorified in every last part of their lives. But that should be us. May the Lord make that so in our lives, that we would be people who as we gather together and as we sing songs and as we pray together, we are more and more firmly rooted in who we are, who Christ declares us to be. That when we live out in the world, people don't see us as um, restrained or selfish, but that they see justice and righteousness, that they see the very character of God flowing out of our lives. May that be so. Let's pray. Our God, we once again come to you in prayer this morning, asking for your direction in our lives. I pray that if there's anything that I have said that could be misconstrued this morning, that you would straighten it out in our hearts and minds this morning. That we might be a people who know who we are because of who you are, because of what you have done for us. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help our hearts to be cut, changed, circumcised. Help us to have hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone to seek after you, to seek to have your ways made known all around us. Protect us from being confused about what matters most. Help us to fix our hope on you, on your coming, on who you've made us to be. And may we live out of that reality. Don't allow us to be confused 
but give us your heart for your world, your people, and set us on your mission. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.